brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. How we doing out there, Higher Side Chatters? From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and you know I can't complain. Well... As long as I ignore the rampant corruption deeply rooted in our system, the suppression of truth across many areas of life, and of course, the engineered outrage triggers that trip up so many people when I wish we could all just get along. But what are you going to do? Despite these things, one of my favorite subject areas lately has been trying to construct a more accurate model of reality and earth science, and that picture gets clearer every day. After great conversations with previous guests like Paul LaViolette, Eric Dollard, Aaron Murakami, Wal Thornhill, David Talbot, and others, we've looked at pieces like the Electric Universe model, ether physics, plasma and the power of light, earth cycles of catastrophe, space weather, and more, and when you bring it all together, you start to see the world with new eyes. You can see why the culture has been steered onto the roads it's on, why certain sciences and scientists have been suppressed, and why we're not encouraged to deeply explore the structures and stories of ancient civilizations. Meanwhile, it seems that the puppet masters of the power pyramid are taking on this study in private, and quite possibly preparing for a rough patch in the system's secular nature they'd rather we just not know about. Well, this all brings me to today's guest, Ben Davidson, the dedicated researcher doing all sorts of things in these areas. He runs websites such as spaceweathernews.com, magneticreversal.org, and quakewatch.net. He's also the co-founder of the Mobile Observatory Project and the annual Observing the Frontier Conference, as well as the author of The Weatherman's Guide to the Sun and creator of the Disaster Prediction smartphone app. On top of all this, he's probably best known by the brand Suspicious Observers, where he heads an online research community investigating solar activity, earthquakes, astrophysics, and weather, which operates a popular YouTube channel by the same name. With over 370,000 subscribers, where Ben provides daily space weather updates and so much more. So let's get into it. The cosmic climatologist, the earthquake whisperer, and the space weather weatherman himself. Ben, welcome to the higher side. That's probably the best introduction anyone's ever given me. Wow. (laughs) Too kind. Thank you, man. And it is a real pleasure. I think the work you do is super deep and informative. I'm really excited to have this audience hear from you. 
Of course, I tried to do some justice to your work in that intro there. But I guess tell us a little bit about how you got on this track, because as I understand it, you were content to go the academic route. But when you tried to incorporate solar activity and global electric circuitry into weather models, you kind of ran into trouble, right? Well, I first ran into trouble at the university level. I was going to be a meteorology major with a business minor. But the papers that were coming out that were really starting to revolutionize our understanding of Earth's electromagnetism, specifically something called the global electric circuit, and how influential it was over the weather and how influenced it can be by the sun and what we call space weather. And even some of the papers that were coming out of scientists at the university where I was taking these classes were not allowed to be actively integrated into the models and forecasting as we go along. And it was politely suggested I find another major, I found another university, stuck with business, and then found myself after law school and realizing that I didn't want to be a lawyer, wish I'd known that before I got to law school, but it took an internship with the Supreme Court of Ohio and then an internship with a big corporate firm downtown to realize that really no side of legal work was going to be satisfying. And so the only other thing you can really do is research and due diligence when you've got a law degree. Turns out that a lot of equity firms called portfolio diversification, their research analysts see as a lack of focus that causes us to learn and master a new subject basically every other week and then apply all the legal and economic things that we know to it as well. But I found myself in that position and through having to get back into chemistry, geology, and various technologies, I realized that, hey, I really do miss science. And since what a due diligence analyst is, is that's the people who have you know tens of hundreds of millions of dollars. They look to due diligence analysts and they say, is this a good investment? You know, What should we do here? Turns out the skill set you develop there combined with what you learn in law school makes you pretty good at interdisciplinary research of just about any kind, provided you can understand it. And so I realized that hey, why don't I just have fun making YouTube videos? I'll make it a hobby, except I'll do what I do at work, except for things that I enjoy. And that way it'll be doing the highest level, but I'll actually like it. Before I knew it, I looked down, there were 100,000 people watching. As you mentioned, there's quite a bit more now. A lot of the names on our list, emails ended in nasa.gov, noaa.gov, usgs.gov, and various universities. So we decided, hey, we'll just dive in with both feet. And since then, it has been pretty incredible, actually. <laughs> that is a great summary. And your work can seem a little intimidating for some people just to jump right into cold because it is so consistent. And you're kind of jumping right into the stream. But for that reason, you made a video on how to introduce suspicious observers to people. And you say the main points are that the electrical currents can predict earthquakes examining the flaws in the standard physics model, and that solar activity affects cyclones and earthquakes on the Earth, which is great because it sort of frames up exactly where you differ from the conventional science. But maybe you can elaborate on what you consider your biggest departures from the mainstream paradigm when it comes to the body of work that Suspicious Observers is really focused on. Well, you know, it's weird because if you had asked me five years ago when I started it, I would have had a different answer than right now. Now it would be the thing that is the most accepted. 
I suppose that's kind of an interesting story to get started. So the first time we ever discussed the word electroquake was in 2012. We had talked about it a little bit before conceptually in 2011, but after reviewing everything and realizing exactly what earthquakes were and how some of them were being triggered, we started talking about electroquakes. And three years after that, in 2015, we published the first paper on how the solar magnetic fields that stream throughout the entire solar system, when they're interacting with Earth, we have certain events that trigger magnitude eight earthquakes. My co-authors were Dr. Uyen from NASA and Dr. Holloman from the Statistics Department of Ohio State. At this point today, after that was really just kind of unthinkable, I was surprised the paper even got out. The Seismo Electromagnetic Satellite has been launched by China and Italy, specifically looking for pre-seismic electromagnetic signals. NASA and ETH Zurich had scientists team up and they're working on earthquake prediction using mostly electromagnetic anomalies. And the American Geophysical Union, basically the top geophysics group in the United States and probably the world, who puts out their own books every once in a while, put out a textbook just last summer called Pre-Earthquake Processes. And about 90% of it is about electromagnetism. So the thing that was once crazy is now capable of being taught in schools via this textbook. So that's amazing. It's sort of a similar version of the story with the weather. You know, our student, Ferris Wald, and this is really the best way to describe it. He was our first student. Apparently, only one parent trusted us enough to let us tutor them. But three months later, he won the National Science Championship at the middle school level, and he's now at the Google World Championships. But it's for the effects of the sun on the number of tropical cyclones, and that being not just cyclones, but typhoons and hurricanes as well, that are counted throughout the year. Basically, there are certain solar phenomena that will tell you whether you're going to get more this year or you're going to get less this year, and they remain pretty relative across time. And so in terms of the sun interacting with the weather and earthquakes, this is pretty amazing because it seems that mainstream science and academia are actually coming around to this, although on the weather side, they still run up against the gigantic $50 billion a year wall known as climate change and its unshakable paradigms where everything ever is human's fault. Hmm. But to actually answer your question, I would say that the departure from mainstream physics is where we currently are as far away as possible from the mainstream. And this mostly has to do with whether or not we live in what's known as the plasma universe which I would say is the scientifically proper way to describe what most people think of as the electric universe or the magnetic universe. And that differs wholly from the standard model where we have dark matter and dark energy and everything's gravitationally dominated. Even in this field, we're starting to see that they're understanding that magnetic fields basically dominate the processes of star formation, of molecular cloud shaping and their filamentation from themselves. But truly, we are living in a world where if you aren't Big Bang, dark matter, dark energy, you're nuts, according to them. So I would say that the plasma universe stuff would probably be where we are, where we are most differing. But we're in good company, I think. While there are subtle differences from the plasma universe to what the Thunderbolts project would call the electric universe. It's a lot of the same stuff. 
same goes for the original Electric Universe, which was actually invented by James McCanny in the 70s. A lot of people don't know that. Hmm. Its name has been appropriated by others, but it was actually James McCanny in the 70s. But in terms of the core of it, the plasma universe, boy, are, we, are you in good company if you start to think in those ways. Christian Birkeland, he's got currents in space named after him called Birkeland currents. Hannes Alfane, Alfane waves. These are magnetohydrodynamic interactive electromagnetic waves. And the third would be Anthony Peratt. The guy who basically discovered that all of these weird petroglyphs were actually describing plasma discharges. He was in charge of Sirius Nuclear Committee in the country. He was one of the top plasma physicists at Los Alamos National Lab. He was the person who really took Birkeland and Alfane and brought them together to really create the plasma universe ideas in general but still just not very well accepted to this day. There's not as much money in it. There's not as much grant security in it. So it is what it is for the time being. <laughs> well, that's a great summary. And all those people are highly convincing in their arguments as far as I've seen. And I think that there's a lot of exciting stuff in this alternative paradigm. And I like how much steam it is gaining. And I'm not entirely new to your work, but it's been going on a long time, and as we mentioned, you do use the global electric circuit and solar activity to predict or forecast earthquakes and cyclones. Can you give people who maybe aren't familiar with your work some highlights to some of the big things that you have gotten right over the past few years? Well, sure. I'll start with the weather one. People who might remember the run in the fall of 2017 of Hurricane Harvey, then Hurricane Irma, Hurricane Maria. Am I missing one in there? I think I might be. But these occurred seemingly out of nowhere. They all popped up in a cooler than average Atlantic Ocean, basically in the same spots, took similar tracks. And we had the largest solar flare surge in 12 years. And all of the solar flares took place when that part of the world was right around noon, basically dead facing the sun. And while they were initially forecasting and the big one here was Irma. They originally forecasted Irma to miss Florida to the east, cut up northward first, and then either whack one of the Carolinas or maybe even Virginia. And the sunspot group at that point was right around dead center on the sun. So it had at least three or four more days of pounding these solar flares. It actually continued for five or six more days. But while those solar flares were going on, we knew there was no chance that this thing was going to take a turn to the north. It had all the energy it needed to ride along the equatorial band right where the sunspot group was. And then whenever the sunspot group sort of electromagnetically lost its grip on that area of the atmosphere and the ocean and things like that, then you would begin to see the northward pull. Well, that sunspot group stopped firing at us right as it was south of Florida, and that's when it started to make its move north. It fired one that was so strong, we actually saw the X-ray explosion from when it was over on the other side of the sun, just over the edge, so to speak. And that was when we got the slight jostle to Irma's path and the slight intensification unexpectedly, even though half of it was over land. And so that was really nice to see because we had looked at papers for years saying that these are the things you could look at. And it was the first time we ever actually 
put it into play in the days whenever the forecast was calling it. We were telling people in the morning news, as long as those solar flares are firing, don't you dare think this thing's going anything close to north. It's going to ride west as hard and as fast as it possibly can. And that was great to see. Hmm. Now, that was exciting for me. I think just about everyone would agree the earthquake stuff is far cooler. And I don't really have a good argument against it because using the global electric circuit to pick out signal areas above fault zones, the risk of earthquakes is no longer, hey, there's fault lines all around the world. An earthquake can happen anytime. We don't really know when or where. It's just sort of random. Well, that's no longer the case because these global electric circuit signals can allow you to reduce that entire world of fault segments down to only 10 to 15% of them. Now, sometimes many of them hold steady for a few days. Sometimes they're changing by the hour and rapidly shifting along a fault line. But still, using these, we can narrow it down to about 10 to 15% at this point. And someday we'd love to get a little narrower on that. But right now, in that 10 to 15%, 90% of the magnitude 7 earthquakes since 2016 have occurred within that 10 to 15%. And of course, if it is just all random, you would have expected 10 to 15% of the magnitude 7 and higher earthquakes to fall within that range. But in fact, we are seeing the evidence of these things really mattering. And this is why China and Italy launched the satellite. This is why a team from NASA and a team from ETH Zurich teamed up to do this. Basically, if you take all the actual launching into space stuff and satellite stuff that NASA does, if you take that away, that's what ETH Zurich is in Germany. Basically, all the other divisions, the thousands of people working on good science, things like that. It's the reason why they're using electromagnetism to try to predict earthquakes, because it works. And these signals are very, very clear. And one of them is what's known as blot echoes, which are deep earthquakes of requisite magnitude. There are powerful electric currents that run through an area called the low-velocity zone. It's basically somewhere between 70 to 300 kilometers deep, depending on where you are in the world. And when you get earthquakes at these locations, you're talking about partially melted rock, sometimes even liquid rock. How does that have an earthquake exactly? Well, it's the electromagnetism of it surging a partially liquid stuff. And so you know that at least beneath the ground there, something electromagnetic is happening. In the atmosphere, all of the global electric circuit up and down energy comes through pressure cells. In high pressure, current is coming from the ionosphere at the top of the sky down to the ground. In low pressure, current is going back up. And you can usually tell so if you have a high pressure cell where you see that current coming down and you get all those blood echoes deep, you might say, hey, wait a minute, at that fault zone, at that crack, at that high conductivity area where high conductivity water is trickling down through the fault, that energy that came down in the high pressure appears to have been building and capacitizing down there at the low velocity zone. Well, when that low pressure cell comes over a few days later, what are the chances it's going to pull that energy back out and we're going to get a large quake in that exact location? It's that simple. It's knowing what the pressure cells do with the electricity on the earth and watching for where it's building underground. Now, there are a couple other nuances, sure, but at QuakeWatch.net, we've got them all laid out for you. And there are people who are successfully predicting earthquakes there every single week, it seems. 
we get somebody predicting a larger magnitude six event a number of times a year. And we've had a couple of people actually predict magnitude seven events, including a guy who just does it as a hobby in his spare time. He's a fisherman from California. He just was like, hey, I'll, I'll read this website. I'll try to predict earthquakes. And he nailed a seven pointer on like his third try ever. Wow. We made it super easy for people so that you could do it. It's fascinating stuff. And congratulations. Really impressive. And in shows like this, you kind of got to have some corrections made to the model so that people can understand the mechanisms because it all relates to each other. And I wanted to ask you about the sun itself because I've had a lot of guests who say that on a fundamental level, we're teaching people the wrong stuff about the sun. Oh it's not a gigantic nuclear furnace that it's not so much gas as it is plasma, or some have even said liquid. Some have even said that it should be thought of more as a portal to a dimension of conscious light. I don't know what you're going to do with that, but how would you describe the sun as you understand it? Well, there are some interesting things here. So the sun has an 11-year sunspot cycle. Now, not all of them are 11 years. Some of them are 10. Some are 12 and a half. We've had them that are nine and a half years. But every 88 years, they do tend to sync up. So it doesn't matter if you've got one that's nine, next one's 10 and a half, next one's 11 and a half. Every 88 years, they're pretty much going to sync up perfectly. This is what's known as a synchronizing and a resynchronizing frequency. They are signatures of computers. They are signatures of clocks. What they would also be is a violation of all nuclear physics for them to be happening on a giant thermonuclear engine. The sun exhibits either intelligence or an intelligent design. And that doesn't mean that that design and those patterns and that math wasn't set in place at the beginning of the universe and then things just unfold. I don't mean to suggest necessarily that God was out there sculpting it and programming it and fine-tuning it with a screwdriver. Hmm. I just mean this thing's not what we think it is. Beyond that, there's no bulge to the sun. There's no sphere we know of that spins that doesn't have a bulge like that. Hmm. And this is really suggesting that the sun's some kind of chronometer, that it's not this random chaotic nuclear furnace at the center. And we see through its interplanetary magnetic fields how intimately connected it is with all the planets. And the number of fantastic papers that have come out, including very recently on Cornell's archive, describing the connection between planetary orbital patterns and planetary alignments and solar activity. It's not some minute gravitational thing. This is a resonance frequency, standing wave interaction. All the planets and the sun put out radio frequencies. When you have them lining up, you got the chance for standing waves, not necessarily all along the line, but certainly, you know, every three count, every 20 count, who knows? And so the point is that we have all this evidence that the sun's not what we think it is. And I think the fact that it can affect cyclones and earthquakes and so many other things, our health, our technology in these ways really is indicative of it being much more connected. And I don't know if that necessarily has to go to a spiritual level. I don't necessarily know that one could evidentially disprove it. 
But what I do know is that there are things like the number of sunspots on your day of birth being tied to your life expectancy, barring any things like accidents. Hmm. It makes no sense unless there is some kind of energy resonance that the sun puts out that affects all the living things around it, including heavily when they enter this realm and how that basically will dictate things for the rest of their lives. Wow, <laughs> man, that's fascinating. And I'm right there with you on the same page. I think just saying that it has an intelligence to it is probably the broadest way to express it. I mean, it is still such a mystery, but I like what you're saying. And so a major reason for me seeking you out right now is that I'm hearing a lot about the Earth's magnetic field, the poles and solar activity, and that we're seeing some unusual or heightened measurements that really need our attention. Of course, in alternative circles, I've heard this stuff leading up to 2012, and the New Age community has been talking about incoming cosmic energy shifts for so long that I kind of stopped listening. But just to read a couple recent conventional headlines, December 7th, 2018, physics.org, Earth's magnetic poles could start to flip. What happens then? February 5th, 2019, Forbes.com, Earth's magnetic pole has officially moved. January 14th, 2019, LiveScience.com, Earth's magnetic pole is wandering towards Siberia. I mean, you'd be crazy not to wonder what this is all about, but what's your assessment? Well, the magnetic poles are in the process of something they do every few thousand to tens of thousands of years. Unfortunately, there are a lot of mass extinctions tied to this thing. Unfortunately, there is virtually no chance much technological if there are any ancient civilizations. Nothing technological survived something like this. We are well underway. We are hastening. It's going very quickly, although not as quickly as we know of in the past. If the reversal were to complete today and the big event were to be all and done with by midnight tonight, we would still have taken 20 years longer than the fastest record reversal. Mm. So we are qualitatively in the danger zone already. Basically, the Earth's magnetic field peaked in strength approximately 3,000 years ago. And it didn't exactly come off the peak too heavily. Technically, it was coming down because it was a peak, but we're talking about virtually no difference, like the difference of one refrigerator magnet over the planet. And sometime around 1600, that became a scientifically negligible but scientifically noticeable increase in the magnetic field change. Now, we're not talking about the actual position of the magnetic poles at this point. We're talking about the field strength. Now, all this while, the magnetic poles are supposed to meander around the Arctic and Antarctic circles, not necessarily at the geographic pole. In fact, we don't have much evidence of it actually lining up with our axis of rotation very often. But it meanders around there a few kilometers every decade, usually always. However, Right around the 1600s and going back through the rock and tracking things like this and starting to get into the 1800s where navigators were able to use compasses and make recordings and things like that, they realized that sometime between 1600 and 1800, this thing started to increase its speed. 
Then in the 1800s, things really got interesting because from 1850 to the year 2000, Earth lost 10% of its magnetic field strength, a whole 10% just gone. And during that time, the normal few kilometers every decade motion of the magnetic poles turned into a few kilometers a year and then dozens of kilometers a year. Then in 2010, that 10% loss number was updated to 15% by the European Space Agency in their swarm magnetic mission. And they basically said that we've gone from losing 5% per century to losing 5% per decade. This is scary math for anybody who can see the writing on the wall there. And the news that we are hearing right now is the culmination of something we first reported back in March of 2018, that the error margin for the world magnetic model at the North Pole had way exceeded what they considered acceptable. And they came out and said as much, and they promised they were going to do something about it. And that's really what we are finally getting now. Ten months later, almost 11 months later, they have made a tweak retroactively to their 2015 world magnetic model due to unexpected movement of the North Magnetic Pole. It's moving much faster than they thought. You know, for the last couple of updates, they have been predicting, oh, yes, we know it's been moving fast, but it's about to slow down. It's about to slow down. Well, this time it really didn't slow down. This time it kicked it into another gear. And they actually had to come in before the scheduled time for their next model release, which was going to be the 2020 model, which they always release about a week early, last week of December. So it's like December of this year, 2019, we should get the 2020 World Magnetic Model. But they just released that tweak here last week because they had to. And flights, GPS, military, all kinds of things would not have the correct information about Earth's magnetic field and maybe where they were or maybe where their aircraft or drones were or any number of other things at that time. And so the situation is hastening. In 2015, we did not get a new percentage update. I think it's not unreasonable to suggest that we are down by 20, if not 25%. And what we have been doing is we have been using the space weather magnitude, like how big was the solar flare? How big was the geomagnetic storm? You know, taking that information from decades ago when, where we do have it and seeing the kinds of technological and weather disruptions that went with it and comparing that to what we have now. And unfortunately, what we're finding is that smaller and smaller magnitude space weather is able to cause larger and larger magnitude effects on Earth. And this is because Earth's magnetic shield the electromagnetic interface with energy from space is weakening. And the only thing keeping the sun from having complete control over the global electric circuit, aka the atmosphere, and over earthquakes is the magnetosphere, and it's disappearing. Evidence suggests that it goes down to 5 to 10% at the worst parts of the reversal. And through the weather and through the earthquakes and probably a little bit through the volcanoes as well, although those are much more tied to cosmic rays. Although as I'm saying that, I'm realizing that 5 to 10% of the magnetosphere down means that the cosmic rays from the sun are bombarding the crust and the mantle as well. Those high energy particles make it all the way through the atmosphere. And so that's your easy accounting for the mass extinctions tied up with these events, not to mention the fact that those particles are bombarding your DNA. And you've got not only 
the one particle instantaneous mutation that causes a tumor or something, but you also have whole body and whole organ yearly and lifetime radiation dose limits that will have long-term effects and things like that. And so that's really what we're looking at here, unfortunately. And to make matters worse, the other side of the only good news about this, which is the fact that we all come from survivors and humans, as you know, we know them have probably survived many of these things over the last 70,000 years or so at least. The evidence that we get from them, they all seem to blame the sun. Hmm. And that's disconcerting because this thing seems scary enough without the sun. And yes, we know that our technology is not going to survive much once we get even tiny little EMPs in terms of solar flares and the cloud particle shock waves, which normally Earth's magnetic field just deflects perfectly fine. You know, sometimes we get some induced currents in the ground and during the big storms, yeah, we see technological events, but when the magnetosphere is down at that lower level, little fluctuations of the solar wind are global EMP events. Atmosphere, crust, and everything in between. Hmm. You got to wonder exactly what those ancients, because it's not like they had cell phones. It's not like all of their technology disappeared and then they started chiseling into stone and telling these stories and digging the tunnels underground and things like that. Putting the pieces to this whole thing together is really not a fun thing to be doing. Right. Yeah, it's a pretty bleak picture sometimes. And you mentioned no update in 2015, I think it was, and that kind of suggests that maybe they've stopped volunteering some of their data because of these concerning numbers. Is that something that's in play? Possibly, and there's always going to be the people who are dead set on believing that they're trying to hide something. Guilty. You know, whether or not that's the case, you know, I could even see there being legitimate reasons for hiding something. Let's say they got a plan to save 100 million people. The only thing is they can't have panic and half of those people dying in chaos and looting and riots. And they also can't have the plans to have these 100,000 miles of underground tunnels disrupted. So I, I could actually see why. I mean, do you remember that quote in the movie 2012? What do you want to just tell everyone they're doomed? The anarchy. There'll be chaos. You know, that guy was supposed to be the bad guy in that movie. I think he was the only one making any sense for like the majority of the movie. Mm. Because think about the job he had. Think about the job you would have if you knew something like this was coming. And you know what kind of tunnel boring technology exists on the planet. What would you do? Yeah, it can't be easy. It can't be easy. I not want to be the one who had to make the decision because I can tell you right now, I know where my heart would go and then my eyes would come down to those numbers and I would realize that by doing what's in my heart, I would be killing 80% of the country, 80% of the world through panic and fear. I think I would make the same choices they're making. Mm. How do you consciously decide to end the lives of the majority of humans just on a principle of telling them the truth when you have plans on trying to save a bunch of them and letting them know the truth and see it with their own eyes anyway? Yeah, no doubt it's a heavy situation and the truth would cause chaos and panic and death. But if this is natural and inevitable, then you're really just keeping the information to yourself 
for self-preservation. I don't see it as a noble act. I would prefer the truth so that people can adjust accordingly, difficult as it might be, but I don't always get what I want. <laughs> yeah, normally that's the case. The The one area where that might have an arguable way around it is when it would unquestionably result in chaos and you know the mass deaths of millions if not billions of people right especially if the premise of the secrecy is you're trying to save a bunch of them and i know that about 10 years ago the united states alone could fit about 25 million people in the bases and all the other tunnel systems underground i wouldn't be shocked if they could fit 300 million people down there today mm. and the evidence that's around this and after diving in in every way possible is that they don't only think that this thing is survivable they see a continuity of the united states of america afterwards and its imminent expansion thereafter in the chaos with basically an entire rest of the world unprepared now i think china just sent a lander to the other side of the moon and they landed on the most magnetic anomaly that is probably the best evidence of the sun causing this catastrophe. Wow. They know it too, and I'm sure Russia knows it. I'm sure the American elite feel like you should never let a good crisis go to waste, and so they are planning how to pivot during all this stuff. But I do feel you that sometimes there's a lot of conspiracy folks who almost seem like they're cheering on collapse. Yeah, I know it's a debt-based system of rule, but if you really think about what that kind of rhetoric means, it means that people that you care about will die, will be thrust into poverty. Like, do you really want to cheer on collapse the way you kind of say you do? I mean, sometimes there's utopian feelings about that without dealing with the real reality of what a system collapse would mean. So I feel you. These are difficult things. And you kind of feel like just perpetuating it, even if you want to change it, but it is what it is. No, I, I agree completely. And this is kind of just a fun one, but there has been a bunch of buzz about heightened activity in Antarctica in the last year or two. And the speculation runs deep as to what that's all about, but it could have something to do with the monitoring of space weather and this pole movement. What do you think? Well, I don't think they're monitoring anything. I think that they are flying as fast as they can you look down there with satellites and i don't know how well google keeps their satellite things updated i think they could be a couple years old even but you got tracks from the chinese bases to the americans to the british to the russians there's no kind of fighting or tension going on down there they are doing everything they can to accomplish something I don't know what it is, but it makes me feel like a lot of the stuff we're hearing in the news is like theater to keep us distracted from this. I know that they have found tropical corals in both the Antarctic and the Arctic. They have found petrified trees in Sweden with no rings, basically meaning no seasons, meaning it was at the equator. They have found so many things suggesting that the Earth either wobbles for a period or actually tilts for a period. And in addition to all the other stories about this, whether you want to look 
religiously or the ancient stories of the sun standing still, the long night of 22 hours, which would have been the other side of the world from the sun standing still. Or you look at Major White's account to his son, Ken White, which he wrote in a book called World in Peril. The book is sold out worldwide now, which I apologize for. It happened about 24 hours after my video on it. But Major White was the guy who was sent by the military, the first guy sent to the Arctic. And his job was to map the North Pole and figure out how to navigate there. And while they were there, two of the scientists basically went on this crazy archipelago hunt and found evidence they thought of nine Earth catastrophes where the Earth literally tilted over. And in later chapters, you hear from the Pentagon that, you know, the Pentagon meeting reportings that he told his son that they said, well, actually, there were five episodes and four of those really actually just looked like they were different ones because in the subsequent ones, they got tossed so hard that they actually just got tossed on top of other ones and it looked like there were nine different layers when in fact there were only five, which is an interesting but still utterly horrifying thing. Mm -hmm. And then you realize that, you okay for me to tell a kind of scary story here, kind of weird? I love weird, scary stories, please. All right, so... One of the people at those Pentagon meetings for the CIA was a man named Charles Hapgood. He was there. He received the reports from Major White and his men. He was part of the team at the CIA and the Pentagon that made the judgment that it was five turnovers of the planet and that they happened every 12,000 years and that they were caused by the magnetic reversal. Now, this is. Very strange because we usually think of the magnetic flip and the geographic axis as being completely different things, especially in the mainstream science. But that's not what Major White's team found, and that's not what the Pentagon said. Now, getting back to Charles Hapgood, he was one of the guys for the CIA at this Pentagon meeting. He was one of the top geophysicists. I'm sure that many of those conclusions I just relayed to you from, quote, the Pentagon were actually his. A few years later, he's a professor, and he's publishing the Earth Crust Displacement Theory, except he's publishing a very, very different version of it. He's publishing a version where every few tens of thousands of years, over the span of about a thousand years, the Earth tilts by a few degrees, which is not at all what was reported by Major White to his son from this former CIA agent. And this is the Earth's crust displacement, which Einstein jumped on board with, but he said there are things you still need to work out with this, but I see the evidence of the catastrophe. It's there. It happens. This is the version that ended up getting debunked by mainstream science. And this version is not at all what we heard out of the Pentagon. This is the version of Earth's crust displacement that can be debunked. Because you see, in the Pentagon version, it's a 90-degree tilt, which will then tilt back. And if that's what you get time after time after time, guess what? It looks like the pole's been in the same place for hundreds of millions of years, which is what mainstream science says. But if there's only about a 7-degree tilt randomly, chaotically, every few thousands of years, well, it's never going back to the same place, and it's not going to have any kind of pattern. 
And you would see evidence of that all over the planet. But what we have is a way to satisfy that mainstream science problem with the theory, except that's not what we got from former CIA agent turned professor Charles Hapgood, who, along with Einstein, basically dominated that entire discussion. Basically, this was a fractured discussion where people thought everything from God to internal processes of the earth to the sun to the galaxy from the 1700s up to the 1950s. And all of a sudden, here comes Hapgood and Einstein, stomps out all other ideas and basically floods the media and the minds of the people with this notion that is easily debunked. Mm. And that seems very weird. I mean, Velikovsky was forgotten in a flash by many of these people. And the question is, what happened? What in the world happened between this guy being at the CIA and delivering this report to Major White at the Pentagon and this Earth's crust displacement theory he forced on the world with Einstein that was so ridiculous. And you actually go into and look at it and easily debunked. Hmm. It really makes you wonder if they were trying to hide the existence of this thing. You know, I got a question. Have you ever seen the actual Apollo mission program logo? I'm not talking about the mission badges on the astronauts. I'm talking about the actual logo of the mission. I'm sure I've seen it, but it doesn't ring a bell to me exactly what it is. Can you describe it for people? Sure. It's got a yellowish, orangish, burnt moon with Apollo's face on it. Another thing that happened is two months after this Pentagon meeting with the CIA guys, NASA was formed. And there was, I imagine, this want to know that you know, if there was evidence for this on the moon. And it's interesting because around that time, the sun was entering a grand solar maximum of the last 400 years. It basically, crazy timing, it peaked right then. And they started to realize, oh God, this might be the sun. And so they went up to the moon with the Apollo mission to look for evidence of a solar catastrophe. Now, this claim I'm making requires evidence, yes? Well, I'll start with some circumstantial things and then I'll move into the good stuff. So Apollo has absolutely nothing to do with the moon. He has never had anything to do with the moon. It is utter lunacy nonsense. Why would you name your first mission to the moon and all these missions Apollo? He was the god of the sun, always associated with the sun. Remember I told you all of those stories where people are blaming the sun for these catastrophes, the ones that were able to leave them in voice and in rock that they carved. They also say the moon got burned, turning somewhere between yellow and bright red. And these are not people who would have confused a normal blood moon or a harvest moon. These people had nothing to do at night but look at the sky. They knew when something was different. And they didn't carve into stone on a whim. It's not like jotting something down with a pencil and paper. This took some time. And the colors they describe are the colors of the moon in the Apollo mission. Now, there's a lot of discussion about the glass up there and the glazing of the rocks. And while much of the glass is unquestionably due to meteorite impact, and from volcanics of the moon. 
There is a class of glass up there that has fission tracks from transuranic elements. That's elements higher than uranium in terms of atomic number. Those things are not coming from impactors. Those need super high relativistic temperatures. Not saying that a meteorite couldn't cause one, just saying that if a meteorite that big hit the moon, there wouldn't be a moon left. They found aluminum 26 in there as well, which can't be created except in a supernova or some kind of stellar nova. And you also have these rocks that are only glazed on the top, like they are flash burned and melted, just the top few layers. You have these perfect beads of glass in dumbbell shape that they say had to have been rotating, spinning at 60,000 RPM after an impact, maybe. But they've also seen that happen through X-ray excitation in the lab. You call it spinning spallation. And we start to look around at the cosmos then, and we say, okay, well, this would have to be something other than a solar flare that we know of. This would have to be something like a super flare or maybe even a tiny version of a nova. But how could that one be? I mean, the sun is still there, right? Well, you know, most people think of a nova as a supernova, as the end of the star. But did you know that there are 10 known recurrent nova in the Milky Way and one in Andromeda? They have nova repeatedly. And the only consensus modern astronomers have is that the list is not complete. We have not been watching very long in terms of cosmic time. There are ones we have seen go boom once that we think now are supernova, and we will someday realize they are recurrent nova. There are ones on super long periods of hundreds or thousands of years that we just haven't seen yet. And there are ones whose nova are so micro, many, that after a few decades would have dissipated and we wouldn't see them at all. Hmm. And then you start to think about the ancients blaming the sun. And you start to think of the sun as a clock cycle. And you start to think of the sun as intelligent and electromagnetically connected to all of the planets in it. And you start to think about the evidence across the cosmos and the evidence on the moon and the evidence in the fossils. And you realize that the sun might be a very long period recurrent micronova star or recurrent super flare star. And you know what's interesting? That last part doesn't even conflict with mainstream science. Mainstream science says something like an X100 solar flare, something that is literally a hundred times bigger than even the worst solar storm we've ever seen might happen once every 800 years. We're not talking about 12,000 anymore. We're talking about something that happens every millennium. And when you scale that up, it means that something as powerful as a miniature nova or a micro nova probably happens on the sun every few thousand years, maybe every 12,000 years. And the reason why I am fully willing to tie all of those things together is because if you are going to operate under the assumption that the earth does tip over, you have to realize it can't be the core in the mantle. It just has to be the crust. Mm. 
because if it was the core and the mantle, the earth would literally tear itself apart from momentum and inertia. It's just this thin little, you know, peach skin shell on the outside floating on liquid. Now, for the most part, these two things are locked together in the low velocity zone, an area where they actually describe rock as having high plasticity. Even though it's melted or melting, it catches with incredible friction and there's incredible electric conductivity there. But they say that plasticity, that friction, that catching that keeps the crust locked to the mantle is based on a delicate thermoelectric equilibrium. That means electricity and temperature. Now, that leads you to believe that the crust could be unlocked and mainstream science would then say, well, okay, fine, but we just don't know of anything that could actually do that. Nothing could actually do that. Well, we've been seeing some papers that have been coming out and these are not even close to being questioned by mainstream science. And this is where one of the keys to tying everything together comes in. They have noticed periodic shifts, oscillations, glitches in the length of a day, where all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the day is a few microseconds different, maybe even a few femtoseconds different. That'd be millions or billions of a second difference, which shouldn't happen, especially not if it's not going to stay that way. Okay, maybe if one day Earth is spinning a billionth of a second slower, you expect that, oh, maybe it's slowing down slightly. The next day, it should still be a billionth of a second slower. Nope, it caught up the very next day somehow. Somehow. Hmm. Well, what happened was, there's two things known to do this. Powerful solar storms and core electric events on the planet, known as geomagnetic jerks. They allegedly originate when there's an electric issue at the core of the planet. They say driven by its own flows and things like that. but. Here's the thing. That means that these geomagnetic jerks and these solar storms are disrupting minutely the thermoelectric equilibrium at the low velocity zone, and Earth is not catching as much. It slips a little bit before recatching once again. And that's why these changes in the length of day are not sustained because it happens instantaneously. Oh, and then we catch right again and we're right back to going with the mantle and the core. But you get something like a super, super burst from the sun. And we already know that even the regular solar flares we see can induce currents down into the mantle. You get something powerful enough to induce all the way to the core. Then not only is that solar storm disrupting the low velocity zone on its way down to the core, but it could create the greatest geomagnetic jerk ever imaginable and truly unlock the crust for a meaningful period of time. Now, if you unlock the crust for a meaningful period of time, then you don't just have this slight rotation speed difference. Then all of a sudden, Greenland says, hey, centrifugal force wants me at the equator. Let's see how far I can make it before we catch again. And we start spinning that way. Antarctica would love to spin at the equator, but it's evenly distributed around our spin axis. It wouldn't know which way to tilt, and it couldn't tilt one way or another if it wanted to. But Greenland can. It has as much ice mass as the whole of Siberia. And the rock beneath it weighs more. 
There's not a lot of mud. There's not a lot of liquid under there. Hmm. Greenland has the possibility to tilt the whole planet. And what's interesting is if Greenland tilts, and Greenland makes it that 90 degrees directly to the equator, do you know where the new poles are? No. The new poles are where the current north and south magnetic poles are set to meet, and the opposite side of the world, which is known as the South Atlantic Magnetic Anomaly, the weakest magnetic point, the most anomalous magnetic point on the planet. So here we got to tie in that magnetic pole movement. You know, when people hear about pole shifting or pole flipping, you assume they're going to stay on opposite sides of the world. If one's at 12 and one's at six, the one at 12 starts going towards three, you expect the one at six to start going towards nine. <laughs> Oops. And when you mention the magnetic anomalies, are you referencing the Dragon's Triangle and the Bermuda Triangle? So those are right next to the new spots. So <laughs> as crazy as that sounds. Wow. The North Magnetic Pole is racing towards Siberia from Canada, but the South Magnetic Pole, although it is moving slower, it's way ahead in the race. It already left Antarctica, and it's racing up into the Indian Ocean. Now, just picture in your head something coming north into the Indian Ocean and something coming down through Siberia. Those things are going to meet in the Bay of Bengal, just off the coast of Indonesia, right next to the Dragon's Triangle. That's where one of the poles would be. If you took Greenland and you tilted it directly southward to the equator. One of your poles is going to be over there where they're set to meet, basically around the Dragon's Triangle, give or take a few hundred miles. And the other side of the planet where the other pole would have to be is the South Atlantic Anomaly, the largest anomaly in Earth's magnetic field in the entire planet, which is just across the equator from the Bermuda Triangle, which are weird crustal and atmospheric anomalies, but we don't notice those anomalies in the global magnetic field. But interestingly, if you start to think of these things as tilted connections, so if the Bermuda Triangle is the lower level disruption and it sort of makes its way up or down to the southern hemisphere by the time you reach the outer magnetic shell of Earth, and the same thing with the Dragon's Triangle and the place where the poles are set to meet, you know, at some point you really just have to say, all right, are we really going to call these like 40 straight coincidences here? <laughs> yes, man. It's it's pretty out there, but it's all great information. I mean, you've given us so much. It's very dense. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of concern out there with the people listening now. Are there ways to prepare? I know growing your own food doesn't seem like it's going to matter much if your garden's just going to get wiped out. I know you recently moved to New Mexico. Is that all we can do if we're not in the club? Stay nimble enough to move when we need to? Well, you know, a quick word on the club. I happen to think the club's going to be opened up significantly. They might want an army in the aftermath. They might want a continuity of the country. They might just want a bunch of people to farm for them. Or maybe they're just going to look down at their children and realize they have a chance to be the hero. Daddy saved all those people. Yeah. Can't discount the power of that if you're a parent. And when you think about when this happened before in the stories, what happened after Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed? There was a bit of a cleansing, and things change. I think we build up to this more and more corrupt and evil thing. Hmm. No longer because the people are born that way, but because they don't have any choice but to survive in the system. They don't know another way, and the system does this to them. What happens when it's gone? What happens when all of that has been torn down 
and the people just look down at their children and all the other people around. You think that being on the top of the pyramid does you any good all by yourself? <laughs> no, it doesn't. It really, really doesn't. In fact, Agenda 21 is a plan to support 100 billion people on Earth. People usually conflate Agenda 21 and depopulation. They're kind of the exact opposite things. Agenda 21 is the plan to deal with 100 billion people on Earth, you know, stack them up 7,000 feet high in cubes and in buildings so they don't take up space. Very different than the Georgia Guidestones and the depopulist agenda. Very, very different indeed. Two factions, you think? Oh, unquestionably. You know, nobody ever heard a word online about how evil the Rothschilds were or the Rockefellers or any of this other stuff until, well, with the example of the Rothschilds, they took all of their investment money out of oil. It was a huge announcement about 15 years ago, and they put it all into solar and wind. I don't think that was a wise financial decision, but within a month, you started getting all of these conspiracies online about the Rothschilds. Well, their history runs pretty deep. I mean, with the suppression of alcohol as a fuel and um, getting into the petrochemical market. But how deep is deep, you know, because where it really starts to become something that is more than just a family that's trying to do something is when you hear those conspiracies that say, oh, these families have been ruling for thousands and thousands of years. You know, Rockefeller was poor in Cleveland before he started that stuff. And before their very immoral play lying about Napoleon to the people to game the market, the Rothschilds were middle of the run bankers. You know, it was through an evil move, telling people bad information about Napoleon and making them bet the other way. When they knew the real facts, they bet the right way and they took the house. But before that, they were poor. Uh, same goes for Rockefeller and the same goes for a lot of these, these. I mean, the number of times that the kingship or the emperorship has been overthrown and new families have taken over from China to England dozens of times. None of these families persist for very long. And one questions how much of it is uneducated love for their children and fear that their children are not going to have the things that they had in life. I mean, once you get there to that top of the world and you don't ever want to smell the smell of crap again, you don't want your kids to either, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know? Well, definitely, broadly speaking, I agree with you that instead of thinking of it in conspiratorial terms as this giant continuity, that it is uh, a revolving door of elites at the top of the pyramid and that people do get usurped constantly and all that good stuff. But I did want to ask you about preparation. Is there something right. that average people can do? Well, I would say that paying attention is one of the key ways. One of the episodes in this series I'm doing on this whole topic was the ways that the sun will tell us if it's going to do this. There's almost no chance that we can see it progressing like this. And there's the stories of it changing in ancient history and the way we see Earth's changes taking place already and the fact that, you know, the Sun, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus and Neptune are all actually changing faster than Earth is in terms of the energetics. It lets you know that the Sun isn't just going to go boom out of nowhere. And there are changes from rotation speed, which would give you a few hours warning 
to chemical changes, ion changes in the corona, which we see very, very well with modern satellites, which could give months warning time. And whether you're worried about a magnitude 9 earthquake or the loss of global power or a nova from the sun, you're talking about the highest level, longest term preparation where it's not just food and water. It's water filtration. It's organic non-franken seeds that are actually going to sprout more than once and aren't going to grow up sterile and will produce more seeds for you. It's things that don't require electricity, pre-industrial tools, things like that. It's having books, not necessarily cramming your head with a bunch of stuff you're never going to remember, but having the books there afterwards so that you have the information, having the maps of the area of greater areas so you know where to go, knowing where the waterways are, knowing where the caves are. If you don't have heat or electricity or air conditioning, knowing where you're not going to die at certain times of the year, things like that. It goes much beyond just the food and the water and the clothing and the ability to start a fire. In this worst case scenario, forget the cell phone, forget the radio, forget all that stuff. Get yourself a Fresnel lens, one of those things that can bend sunlight into fire. They cost $4 and they come and they're about the size of a credit card. That's the kind of stuff we're talking about here. Now, granted, chances are just about everyone in the world will experience one, if not many, smaller scale, shorter duration events from weather, from earthquakes, from a lesser solar storm before that big day. And so things like a Faraday cage for your electronics, having a NOAA, uh, a NOAA weather radio, having communications radios, having batteries, flashlights, candles, things like that, those all still matter. Having days worth of food and water and things like that, those things still matter. It's just that this is something else. This is a complete reset. This is not, hey, can you hold out until FEMA arrives? This is, FEMA's not coming. This is nobody's ever coming again. Not for thousands of years. <laughs> wow, man. I mean, hey, most families do have a plan for some kind of house fire. Might as well just scale that up a bit. Yeah, well, you know, you mentioned that I moved across the country. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of people can't do that. And I don't recommend, you know, people just getting scared, quitting their jobs, uprooting their kids, yanking them out of school and going and living in the woods. Because the sun's not giving us any of those signs right now, <laughs> for one. but also because you're going to cut off your ability to stay informed. You're going to really, really hamper the quality of life of your whole family. And for all we know, this thing's a hundred years away. For all we know, it's a thousand years away. When we're talking, even on things as short a time scales as 12,000 years, here we are. We don't know if we're 10,000 years later, if we're 11,994 years later. We don't know. And you can't just operate as if the world's coming to an end. You have to find a way to balance it. Not finding a way to balance it ruins relationships. It ruins friendships. I know many people who have lost marriages or girlfriends or boyfriends over things like this. And sometimes it has been because their partner was unwilling to have an open mind or they were just happy being blissfully ignorant. Other times it was because the people took it too far and went too extreme. And I've seen it happen. You know, that placebo thing goes the other way too. 
a hypochondriac thinking something's bad for you is going to make it worse. Mm-hmm. It's called a nocebo or negative placebo. It works that way too. And there's a lot of things you can do to make your life better. That doesn't involve money. That really just involves your family and knowledge. Because when they say things like knowledge is power, knowing that I analyzed this up and down and I chose a place in the world I think is going to be safe gives me peace. It makes me happy. Knowing that I've got items prepped, knowing that I know where the waterways are and the local caves are, it's a form of power that money can't buy. Yeah, I get that. So. This is how you become powerful here in the next age where luckily currency will not be the only form of currency, where knowledge, where honor, where respect, where loyalty will once again hold weight with people. And I think in that world, when the elites have no choice but to be on the same level as everybody else, at least at the start, I think that logically, and the evidence supports this that they're going to try to save many, many people. And even if you want to be as negative Nancy about it as you want, then you got to say, all right, well, they just want their slaves. They want their cattle, but they want them. That's what the evidence suggests. It's not like, hey, just let them all go and we'll start over. We'll build our own pyramid, the seven of us all by ourselves. This will work. That's not their freaking plan. Every pyramid needs a base. Every pyramid needs a base. And this is why. The depopulation side of things, it is a small faction. The other side of things realizes that the more people are at the base of the pyramid, the higher up into the sky it is thrust. And that's where they want to be. They love it up there in the clouds. They love staying higher all the time. (laughs) Well, I guess, you know, cross your fingers, folks, and you can be the bottom rung on the next ladder. Yeah, well, you know, the thing is, I don't think that they get to maintain their position after that. And I also, it is not lost on me that at least in the United States, tons of these elites are like devout, genuinely believing Christians. I mean, part of that mindset, I mean, let's be honest, it's like doing well in school and being a nice person. It helps you get ahead. It helps you succeed, you know, not screwing people over working hard, being moral, being kind. These kind of things help you succeed in the world. There's a reason why so many elites are like that. Hmm. And if we're talking about the Mormon elites or the Jewish elites, they are commanded to help everybody. I like to think that the Christian elites are commanded to help everybody (laughs) too, but it's not like most people in our community have that mindset. And I think you have to realize that That statement from Men in Black is true. A person is smart, but people are dangerous. And that doesn't just go for looting and rioting. That goes for the elites as well. They feed on each other. They feed on their position. And at the end of the day, they're not alien reptiles. You know, they haven't just been breeding with their own bloodlines for thousands of years and, you know, think everything else is dirty. They are just like us. They do drugs. They have sex. They poop. They are just like us, and they know it. It's one of the reasons why, at their status, they work so hard to convince themselves and everybody else that they're not, Hmm. because they know they are, and their kids are. And 
when that day comes and they realize that there is no more pyramid, there's no more stock market, there's no more fancy car or fancy purse, hmm. I think that we're going to find a lot of them are smart enough to do exactly what needs to be done and what probably has been done many, many times in the past. <laughs> well, maybe. I mean, you're obviously a little more optimistic than I am, but I'm rooting for you. And this has definitely been a lot of fun and very educational and a little scary. But before we get out of here, do give the people what they need to stay informed and follow your work going forward. Well, absolutely. Well, the free videos come out every single day on the Suspicious Observers YouTube channel. They are reposted at suspiciousobservers.org, at spaceweathernews.com, and a number of places across the net. Tons of free videos, tons of free information on this stuff. I always recommend everybody take in as much of the free stuff as possible. It's literally hundreds, maybe even thousands of hours of it. And then after that, if you want a little more, our Disaster Prediction app, my book, and our website are really great ways to stay informed. And the app specifically, the moment I see anything even remotely close to any of the stuff I talked about in this show coming to fruition or even showing the first signs that it's beginning, even months in advance, the only way I have to really get into your hands and talk to you is through this app. So it's called the Disaster Prediction app. Other than that, spaceweathernews.com, Suspicious Observers on YouTube. We're here every day. Very cool. And you do have an upcoming conference that I don't know if this episode is going to get out before, but there is always next year, and it sounds pretty exciting. Right. That's called Observing the Frontier. We do it every year. If you do start watching those free daily shows, we do talk about it when the time comes to see if maybe you want to come out and be a part of the awake event of the year where it's not like trying to talk to your friends and family about this stuff. Everybody knows what you know and loves having those conversations. So. And you'll be surprised at how many people who work for NASA or who are professors think like you do and come to the show and love talking to you about it because they can't talk to their colleagues about this stuff either. So, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Well, community is key. So that does sound great. And, man, awesome. Thanks so much. A lot of information to mull over. Great work. And take care out there, man. Absolutely. It was good chatting with you. You have a good one, man. Cheers. All right, people, and crossing the finish line, Ben Davidson, Mr. Suspicious Observer himself. Man, do I respect his work and his dedication to daily uploads. That is a commitment, if I've ever seen one. And this would also be the first full show that really spawned out of the joint sessions. That's probably worth a mention. Shaman Janir joined for the January sesh and brought up Ben's work. I've seen it on the Plus forums, too. But Ben's work into space weather, earth crust displacement, the global electric circuit, and his earthquake and cyclone prediction work, all top-notch. But I did honestly start to worry a little bit there towards the end when we folded the elite and the big conspiracy back into these overall themes. You heard my call to just stick with some of the solutions or even just some common interest because it's clear that we do think a bit differently when it comes to the Rockefellers and some of the elite families in here. And the whole thing is just a little bittersweet that it was right at the end of the show 
It was pretty comical because I feel like we had a great overall episode until that last section. I was just sitting here to myself thinking, oh boy, (laughs) you've done it now, Ben. Pull up, pull up, pull up. But to be a bit more serious about it, if we're going to get off the beaten path and find people who have an alternative expertise, we have to understand that they might not hold our same views in every other area. I wouldn't ask a good mechanic about my teeth. I wouldn't consult a really good bowler on web design. You know, everybody's got their niche. And it's fun to spend two hours talking to people about material related to their expertise, but sometimes we stumble into some points of difference. That's life. And it's interesting because we did have two different sections on CIA manipulation and information control, and I knew how he felt about the moon landings going into it, although I wish I had been able to dig a little bit more into where he's gotten this information. In particular, the thing about wrapping everything in gold to get beyond the Van Allen radiation belt. That was pretty new to me. Although it is a fun idea, and I like the possible tie-ins with ancient cultures mining so much gold and speculating that maybe there is something to that slave species hypothesis of a guy like Michael Tullinger. But in this era of infighting and choosing sides and almost seeking out ideological conflict, I'd rather not. Because when it comes to some of the points Ben made about the elite, I know where my head is at, and I'm comfortable with my opinions in these areas, and I hope you feel the same. But these are kind of small differences and matters of opinion when really no one knows what the capstone cabal says behind closed doors. And it's all quite moot if the polls flip and (laughs) we're all thrust into chaos. And that really is what's compelling about this episode, learning more about our environment and the overall system from this perspective that takes solar and electrical energy into account. And I really liked what he said about the sun. It gets back to that conscious light kind of thing. Hmm. And all that said, I mean, Ben is a guy who was edged out of academia for just this type of stuff. And I think it would be hard to not find something worth taking away today. Probably many things. And the reason we're steered away from ether physics and a proper understanding of light, consciousness, and the sun, it's probably multifaceted. One component probably is that maybe the technology is simple enough to be very destructive. I've heard a story of Tesla putting a device on the side of a building, the whole thing starts to shake, and then he pulls it off real quick and says something about how he could rip the earth in half with the stuff he knows. (laughs) I don't doubt that. There's enough crazy Tesla lore out there that who knows if that story is even true. But many researchers have taken sacred geometry and ley lines and sort of gridded out the planet. And you find that a ton of ancient megaliths, maybe all of them, are on that grid. Funny we're talking about this now, but last night on the joint sessions, it went a bit differently because we only had three calls in an hour and a half and really... Two of those calls took 95% of the show, and I put those two people together, and a lot of these very same themes came up. You might have even heard me say, oh, you mean like they formed the pentagram? And the guy's like, no, I'm not talking about pentagrams here. (laughs) And that's my bad, because I've been getting into the work of these two twins, Mark and David Flynn. I think David has actually passed, sadly, but... They've both done some great work connecting ancient texts 
to us coming from Mars even. And they do this earth grid work too, but very much from a religious standpoint. Although one thing I liked is when they talked about the fruit in the Adam and Eve story being a quince. And when you cut a quince in half, the seeds form a star. It's a pentagram in a circle. And maybe the forbidden fruit is magic. Maybe it does relate to Tesla in the sense that if you screw up the frequencies and the resonance, you can break the whole system. Maybe that's why secret societies preserve this knowledge, or at least in part, not to go all apologetic. But since I'm talking about them, just to read a little bit from their website, I guess Mark's website, SiriusTwins.com. Megaliths on the Earth seem to be related to each other, built along a grid composed of two pentagrams within the circle of the equator. If you're looking down on the Earth with the North Pole in the center, all the monuments fall into place along this grid if one pentagram is anchored at Giza and one at the prime meridian zero longitude. Too many major architectural structures exist along this dual pentagram design for it to be mere coincidence. This design even predicts where megalithic structures will be found as well. And I think we're familiar with this type of thing, the mapping around the globe. Maybe they jailbroke it in the past. I'm pretty down with this energy grid thing. I'm sure there's many ways to map it and draw it. But it's clear we had this previous round of history where the entire grid was in use. Was it enlightenment? Was it control? Who knows? But the fact that it's all ruins now... And we know very little about that time is interesting. Maybe it caused something like the Great Flood. Or maybe Joseph Farrell's Cosmic War is in play. I'm open to a lot of things. And just let me read one more thing from their website while I have it up. Related to the Roswell crash and sort of that Chris Knowles, something happened, but maybe an alien crash landing was the cover story kind of perspective, as well as this Earth grid thing. And maybe it's connection to higher dimensions or higher realms. This is what David Flynn says. The impact near Roswell lays 33 degrees north latitude at a distance of 2,012 miles from the equator. When the latitude of the impact site, 33 degrees north, is multiplied by the universal mathematic constant pi, the result is 104 degrees, the longitude of the impact site. At Roswell, if pi is multiplied by the latitudes from 33 degrees to 33.59 degrees, a line with the resultant longitude can be traced showing the precise flight path the disk traveled before impact. The line of coordinates lies southeast to northwest, exactly in the direction the craft appeared to follow according to eyewitnesses recorded in the Roswell Daily Record, July 8th, 1947. The only place on Earth where 33 degrees latitude and 104 degrees longitude exists without laying in an ocean, as it does south of the equator, or on an uninhabited mountain plateau, as it does in the eastern hemisphere, is a few miles northwest of Roswell, New Mexico. The sacred number 33 multiplied by pi just happens to produce the location where a flying saucer crash-landed in 1947. So this to me is kind of talking about portals or using sacred geometry to open up 
gateways or windows or hidden hyperspace kingdoms, and maybe something came through. Maybe it was more of a Roswell working, as Chris has put it. I do really want to try to get Mr. Flynn on the show. I know the biblical perspective is heavy with him, but clearly he does a lot of math as well. He would probably be another example of someone who I think has some really great data and maybe some points of difference with yours truly. So I don't know. I just found all that interesting. Still thinking about last night's joint session, but I think a lot of these books and texts that spawn religions that are used for control on the surface actually do contain information that the elite seek out and coalesce with what they already know from being in the club. So I'm getting a bit off track here, clearly, but the point is that there might be many reasons why we are steered away from a deeper understanding of our system and its energies. This stuff is extremely complex, and I don't think there's an easy solve. Whew. But hey, let's hope the poles don't flip on us anytime soon and the sun doesn't sneeze in our general direction. Amen. (laughs) As always, we have an extra hour for people who support the show via a Plus membership or Patreon subscription. And in today's, I talked to Ben about things like the connection between solar activity and human progress throughout history, the idea of consciousness upgrades from changing solar activity, the polar vortex, underground tunnels and cities from the last round of solar intensity, ancient gold cultivation and radiation deflection. Oh, here's a good one. The sun changing from yellow to white and how it relates to the four horsemen of the apocalypse. That was a great little rant, real tight little package there. I love that. And then just what I had already mentioned here, the earth's religions and their earth change origins. Another CIA classified book that speaks to coming cataclysms, why the plasma universe model is suppressed, and the $21 trillion in off-the-books money within the Pentagon budget. Man, we went for it in that second hour. <laughs> no pressure. But all interesting and a few takes that are different from the conventional and surely add more food for thought. If you liked Ben, let him know at Suspicious Observers. Again, daily updates. A nice compliment to your morning coffee. But I got one more show to do before the month ends, so I'm out of here. I'll see you soon. Until then, I've done my part. Your move, secret-keeping scientists, weather wizards, and keepers of the climatological quarantine. Your fucking move. Maybe you'll see goddamn this plan no fan spraying on me cronies don't you know they control the weather with all the chemicals that they spray oh no it go it gone bye bye Ooh, I, I think i sink and I die Don't you know They control the weather With all the chemicals That they spray The earth unravels And we're sedated It's falling to the floor Falling to the floor It blocks the sun
sun.